0: and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Okay, heads up, my creative brothers and sisters. Not Real Art now has an exclusive membership program designed just for you. If you're an artist or an art lover, and you appreciate what we do here at Not Real Art, and you'd like to join the family and help support the cause and celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it, please consider becoming a member today. Your membership will help support our work, such as funding our artist grant and production costs for all the programs and content we produce. Your membership will also help us stay independent and commercial free. And when you do become a member, you'll get valuable benefits and perks we think you'll find very cool. And becoming a member is super affordable. Just $5 a month for artists and $10 a month for art lovers. So to become a member of the novel art family, Simply go to notrealart.com, click on membership to sign up, and help us celebrate and elevate the creative culture we love and the artists who make it. Thank you.
1: Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the
2: show.
0: Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we celebrate creative culture and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Sourdough. My co-host, the esteemed Man One, is on assignment today, so it's just me here in the booth. But I want to thank you all for supporting us and continuing to listen, and we do this for you. And I want to talk to you a little bit about our show today, because the next couple of episodes over the next few weeks are going to be a little bit unique, because on October 24th, we're the media sponsor for a show that Crew West Studio, our mothership, is producing called Indivisible, and it's a political art exhibition that... Like I said, we're producing, and it's going to be a great show. So definitely want you guys to check it out on October 24th when it goes live just by going to indivisible2020.org. But the whole reason we're doing Indivisible, which again is a political art exhibition, was to address stuff going on in our country right now. You know, obviously it's been a hell of a year, and certainly after the murder of George Floyd, we, I think like everybody, we're thinking about, well, what could we do to help make a difference or help address the conversation, add some value to the conversation and be a positive voice in what has been a pretty challenging year. And it's only going to get more challenging over the next few weeks as we come into the election and depending on how things play out over the next few weeks and months as we sort out the votes and see who the legitimate winner of the presidential election is going to be. So anyway, I mean, we decided many weeks ago that we thought that given how divided the country is and divided people seem to be, that it would be interesting to curate a show that would address some of these issues. And so we asked our friend Karen Farido, who is a political artist, who's done some incredible work. I mean, she's got death threats for her work. I mean, she is on the front lines, no doubt. But Karen also happens to be a Not Real Art grant winner from 2019. And so, you know, we think of Karen as being kind of in the Not Real Art family as one of our grant recipients, which, by the way, if you're an artist listening and you haven't applied for a 2021 grant, be sure to do that. But Karen and I started talking about you know, what we could do. She came up with this amazing idea for a show called Indivisible, sort of exploring what it means to be indivisible today. Many of us grew up stating the Pledge of Allegiance and, you know, saying that we're, you know, indivisible, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Turns out that's pretty aspirational. We've always been very divided and we're still divided today more than ever, it seems. And so we thought it'd be great to, you know, have a show that we could have some great artists come together and explore what indivisible means these days, what it means to be divided, what it means to be united in this country today and even around the world. And so Karen has been a great partner and has been curating this show. She's been working with us and our partners at Sugar Press Art. To curate, I think, what is going to be an incredible show, we've got some incredible artists, Andrea Arejo, Linda Leike, Gabe Galt, Edward Culver, John Mark Edwards, Kaelin Campbell, Kay Brown, Man One, Leroy Johnson, Ted Meyer, Aaron Yoshi, Miles Regis, Anna Stomp, Linda Vallejo, and Meredith Vandenberg who are all gonna be in the show. So Karen's been doing this great job of curating. We've got some amazing artists. And, you know, Sugar Press has been an incredible partner. They're gonna be creating prints around much of the art in the show that you can buy. And as part of the show, we thought it would be great to have the artists on the podcast as guests to talk about their work, talk about the show, just talk about the state of our union. And so the next few episodes of the podcast are going to be conversations with these artists. And all these conversations were done remotely over the interweb. And so it was, you know, technically challenging at times, but we were able to pull it off. And so we've got Leroy Johnson coming up. We've got Linda Vallejo, Man One. We've got Mary Sherwood Brock, Joshua Waddles, Karen Ferrito, Ted Meyer, Aaron Yoshi, Kaylin Campbell, all who are going to be guests on the show. And so we're thrilled about that and want to continue to promote this show. The show is going to hang virtually until the inauguration. And, you know, so you'll be able to go to indivisible2020.org to access the show and look at the art and experience the art. But we're going to have a Zoom reception opening on October 24th so if you're hearing this before October 24th please come to our opening Zoom reception that evening where you can hear from our artists and ask questions so on and so forth but like I said the art itself the exhibition itself will hang until the inauguration and oh by the way we want to make the Indivisible show an annual event because this is an ongoing conversation. Certainly, building unity in this country is a long-term project that you know we're f- fully aware that one show is not going to solve our problems. We need to keep having these conversations. We need to keep speaking truth to power and challenging people to think more broadly and more deeply about these issues. And so, Invisible is a show that we hope to do year over year. This is our first year indivisible 2020 so definitely go to indivisible 2020.org and check out the show i want to you know shout out to karen ferrito who has been curating the show and she's been doing a powerful amazing incredible job i want to shout out to sugar press art one of our key sponsors in putting this show together many of their artists are featured in the show and then of course not real Art is the media sponsor, so you'll be hearing from us about the show moving forward. So definitely check it out. In today's episode, Karen and I are joined by artists Mary Sherwood Brock and Joshua Waddles, who are in the indivisible show. And interestingly, both of them have deep roots in d c. Mary grew up there and has been an activist for years protesting all kinds of things, not the least of which was the Vietnam War. Joshua Waddles as well, really is a lawyer turned photographer who's doing some amazing work and has been on the front lines of activism his whole life, including protesting the Vietnam War. And so the conversation between Mary and Joshua is a deep one and at times an intense one and something that Karen and I really enjoyed listening to because there was a lot of passion there for our country and for justice for all here in this country. So let's get into this with Mary, Joshua, Karen, and myself. Mary Sherwood-Brock, Joshua Waddles, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. Good to see you. Thank you for joining. We're joined today with Karen Ferrito, who is our curator, and we are here to talk about the upcoming show, Indivisible, that you guys are showing in. And you know, we're living in such weird times on multiple levels, but this idea of indivisibility feels as relevant as ever. Many of us grew up stating the Pledge of Allegiance in class and proclaimed being indivisible. But perhaps maybe, I know I didn't appreciate how aspirational that notion was when I was 10, stating it blindly. Mary, what does this idea of indivisible mean to you?
2: Well... When I was a child, I actually always thought it was invisible that I was was saying. But when I got older, yes, I did start to appreciate it more. And it's funny, this COVID period and all of the attention to social justice, I was also doing a lot of family history research, and it kind of seems like it's been an ongoing dialogue in this country, something that I don't think people realize that you know, this is boiling up now just the way it has in the past. And, you know, each time we have to sort of kind of push the ball forward, you know, it's kind of an ongoing process. So Indivisible has really meant for me how to get other people on board, you know, we sort of have a lot of dialogues all the time in this country. And that's what I think is rich and good and important. So, that indivisible thing is kind of aspirational in that part because how do you bring a lot of those dialogues all together?
0: Sure, Josh. What say you about this notion of indivisibility?
3: Well, the schools I went to, we never said the pledge of allegiance, so I just sort of learned it on my own. Were you a communist? What no, was- I went to a progressive kindergarten, I guess, in, in New York, and then I was in the French we say system for, for my sixth grade year. And in the French lycée system, of course, we would sing the Marseillaise and you know do all kinds of French stuff.
2: Even
3: though I was an American, I actually had a lot of we were overseas, and when we got back to the United States, I, I had a lot of American identity issues, there. and most of those were a function of being tagged as an American overseas, despite that I only spoke local languages and only lived in local society. But nonetheless, my brother and I were these sort of strange American things. It was post-war Europe. And then when we got back to the United States, I was trying to figure out what Chuck Berry was, you know, what an automat was, which was actually my favorite discovery of all. I don't know if any of you remember automats, but they were like a cafeteria that you would go into and the wall was complete. All the walls were covered would be certain windows that would open up with little doors. Inside would be a ham sandwich, or inside would be a donut, or whatever it was you wanted. You would put coins in to get the object that you wanted. I just thought that was the greatest thing in the world. So I became very interested in America. I was an American Studies major in college with a minor in Ethnic Studies. You know, went on to law school eventually, which is sort of a Very sort of ultra American thing, if you're in American law school. And I went to law school in Washington, D.C., which was a big mistake. But because I went to the Watergate hearings before that, and I actually saw John Dean testify, and I said, wow, if you want to be a lawyer, you should go to D.C., because there's so many lawyers, what a smart idea. So I went to law school in D.C., and Yes, there are a lot of lawyers in D.C., so whenever you introduced yourself as a law student, people couldn't give a shit. I mean, there was absolutely no status attached to them. You know, anyone who was interested in hanging out with someone in the legal space would say, oh, well, you know, I can go hang out with, you know, a real lawyer if I want to. There are so many of them. But anyway, any rate, so Indivisible to me has always been about protest. In other words, it's the protective glue of the American experiment that permits people to say what they need to say or want to say about whatever it is they want to say with the knowledge that it would still be included. And of course, it's aspirational. It's completely aspirational. We've never met any of the ideals of our country, but that's not the point. The point isn't to meet them. The point is to reach for them. And I'm very sad recently to see that we're not doing that as a country under the leadership of Donald Trump. but you know, Mao Zedong was the one who said, you know, five steps forward, two steps back. And Barack Obama, despite the criticism that he may not have gone far enough when he had the opportunity, he went pretty, socially went pretty damn far for this country. I was so proud of my country when he was elected president because of the notion of indivisibility and the notion of the for the, you know, exclusion of such an enormous group of people of such extraordinary importance to our country. And, you know, I guess there's an inevitability to us having to take these two steps back. Very painful. And it's hope that we have taken our medicine and we can continue forward in the future very soon. So yeah, Indivisibility to me is all about the potential for inclusiveness despite differences.
0: Mary, have you ever protested as a political artist, as an artist? Have you made any marches for any particular cause?
2: Well, actually, I'm my background, I grew up in Washington, D.C., outside of Washington, D.C., and my parents were very active in terms of being political. I grew up protesting civil rights. There were whole parts of uh, DC, Maryland, and Virginia I never went to because it wasn't segregated, you know, so we would protest that way. And I carried signs on weekends to, you know, for equal rights. So I kind of grew up protesting and I was, you know, in front of the White House a lot, actually, you know, growing up, that was a regular place to protest too. And I remember when Nixon resigned, I just happened to be at home visiting my mom and I went down to the White House and there was a huge party when he had, been, <laughs> he resigned and took off. And that was probably one of my best experiences because I was arrested during when I was in high school and, you know, for protesting and, you know, my parents were actually really proud of me. They had, it was 24 hours in a weird lockup because I was underage and, my other thing is I took a bus to New York to the UN for a protest and I, on the train, I became a member of SNCC. <laughs> I think I was 14. So I was like one of the youngest members and the guy that signed me up said, you know, you're, I think you're one of the youngest members, but I got their magazine all the time. And this is, of course, when John Lewis was running it. So, you know, it was just getting a lot of people involved. So, yeah, I mean, I grew up protesting and lately I didn't protest recently because of COVID and I'm in that wrong age group and I live with people that I have to be careful about. But I was very encouraged that so many people that it was something that you just sort of saw people kind of going out and being very passionate about. And I just hope they all vote because you know, you don't get anywhere in this country unless you get your votes out there too. So, you know, and it's everywhere. I mean, for real progressive change we have to always work local. And that's always been my big thing, you know, get things happening locally. So I'm also a member of a group called CLAW here in LA, which is about keeping the wildlife and nature and protecting it, stuff like that. So, you know, it's all levels of issues that I feel I kind of grew up protesting. Sorry for the long answer. but Yeah, no, <laughs> this, is, this
0: is great. This is what we want. We want a rich conversation. I forget who's said this. Maybe it was Benjamin Franklin. I don't know. Somebody said the art of politics is the art of what's possible. And whoever said it, and to the extent that that's true, is indivisibility even possible? And to Josh's point, is that even the goal? I mean, is that, is it naive and idealistic to think that? Because, you know, when I think about indivisibility, it's interesting because we were never, you know, indivisible, right? We were divided on any number of levels from day one. And yet we are united on this big, beautiful planet called Earth. And we're all, (laughs) you know, on this planet together. And so we are divided, yet we are together. And we live and die by the consequences of our choices as a people, as a species, as a Democrat or Republican or whatever. So I don't know. I mean, is I guess what can we hope for? What is our greatest hope here?
2: I always think there's a bit of an aspirational thing that the aliens will attack us so that we become really (laughs) indivisible. And I just heard something on the radio yesterday that made me laugh because it was supposedly when Reagan and Gorbachev got together to sign the treaty to stop making nuclear weapons together that they went into a cabin and they just had themselves and their translators and Reagan, you know, the movie guy said to Gorbachev, you know, if America got attacked by aliens, would you come to our help? Would you come to our aid? And supposedly Gorbachev said, yes, I would. And and Reagan said, I feel the same way about you. And they came out and they were in such a better spirits. And supposedly that's how they got over the hump to start negotiating to make a treaty to start banning the production of nuclear weapons. So, you know, maybe that is what we have to wait for. (laughs) don't know even if it's just an imaginary idea of thinking about i don't know why global warming hasn't affected us the same way it is like the aliens we are the asteroid right so we better get our act together
3: so scott i'm sorry to tell you but politics is the art of the possible is a quote from otto von bismarck which is about <laughs> okay. as far away from Benjamin franklin as we can get <laughs>
0: I was hoping you were going to call me on that job. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, I mean, I am sitting in front of a computer. <laughs> Guilty as charged. Yeah, yeah, this isn't the presidential debates where they don't do fact-checking.
2: Yeah, I thought that was supposed to happen last night. Fact-checking? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, so I am so grateful for Karen, who's curating this show. And one of the reasons I'm grateful is that I'm meeting all these amazing new artists, Mary and Alcander. I was not aware of your work prior to uh, Karen bringing you into the show. So I'm so grateful for that. I mean, what was it besides, of course, you know, Karen's invitation? What was it about the show that enticed you? I mean, you're very busy, and yet you're doing this. I guess what was compelling to you about participating?
2: Well, Karen is a hero of mine, of course. I think she's just an amazing artist and activist. And we've collaborated on shows in the past. And so I'm always excited to participate in anything that Karen's uh, doing. I have been organizing a couple shows as well. And one was called immigration but it was spelled I'm migration because it was a way to sort of get a lot of people to rethink this subject because I feel like this is going to be something that's going to keep impacting this the globe you know for a long time now and we have to get beyond this instinctual nationality and racism and all of this and start thinking about how to solve problems in a more global way. So I thought we could get this dialogue started by making a big call that artists would do something and they'd send it in and we'd put it together in a big exhibition. And it's now over 160 artists uh, internationally. Wow. And the next show I was scheduled for Australia, but we just – because of COVID had to stop the project because unfortunately things are not, you know, they're going back up again in Australia and the art center is having financial problems, but we are planning to go to South Africa whenever we can go again. So that will be one of the next stops. So it's kind of an exciting thing to do these exhibitions. It's a lot of work, but it's so exciting to see how enthusiastic artists are in terms of getting you know, working together. And then the installation process is really exciting for me as well, because it goes together in a different way each time. So it's kind of each, you know, the artwork kind of has a dialogue together, it tessellates and has a way of each of the pieces kind of resonates and has a different subject matter that it's focused on. But it all kind of comes together to make a really dynamic narrative about how we think about you know, the planet and life on the planet and migration and all the, these kind of effects. So I found that really interesting. And Karen and I have done a lot of shows on climate change as well. I think, Karen, like two or three shows I think we've done with like climate change focus. One that got delayed. We did two yeah. and then the last one is delayed yeah. until next spring.
0: Well, Mary, tell us about the piece that you have in our show, Indivisible.
2: Okay. She,
1: um, does she know? I don't know. <laughs> Do you know yet? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know oh, I right. told you're, you. You're, a,
0: you're an artist. I get it. You may not know yet. I got it.
2: <laughs> yeah. So it's an accordion book, I believe. Right. Oh, great. So the we, the people. Yeah. So I had started that. It kind of started. There's a few plates that I had made for a project I worked on called Big Valley, Which was a loose interpretation of like Los Angeles, California, Southern California, kind of trying to think about it from a feminist point of view, a feminine point of view, not, Mm -hmm. you know, masculine pioneer point of view, trying to think about it from more of an environmental part of point of view as well. So that was one project. And then I had a lot of smaller plates and you make these little plates to sort of add into the whole project. I kind of do it like a collage style when I make my prints. Those I started printing with another plate I made, which was the Constitution. We, the people, you know, you see the the text. So I started finding it really interesting how that looked with the two of them layered. And they're small prints, but, you know, I felt like, you know, they made kind of an interesting effect, sort of seeing these different characters, you know, with the we, the people, because they were the people that were basically ignored when that document was first made. So, again, we're back to the indivisible concept again of, you know, how it's a constant to keep moving the ball forward and keep including more people and keep working towards equality.
3: Josh, tell us about the piece that you have in the show. A single photograph of a lot of water (laughs) and a lot of sky. It's in black and white. I intentionally pushed some grain into the image to make it feel a little chunky, what I would call chunky. And then across the sort of top third horizon line is a thin, sort of black, very sharp black line that includes, if you look at it closely, the Staten Island Ferry going by the Statue of Liberty. So, you know, you could look at it in a kind of corny way as, you know, a statement about troubled waters uh, and democracy. You could look at it as a sort of sad reflection on the distance that the aspiration of a boat going by the Statue of Liberty represents and where in fact we are now. But that's really not was well, not my intention, although that is part of the image I think. But my intention was really celebratory. Yeah, you know, the Statue of Liberty, New York Harbor, for me particularly the Staten Island Ferry is very evocative because back in the day I could get on the subway when I was 12, 13 years old, go down to Staten Island Ferry, get on the ferry for a nickel, buy a bread hot dog, and eat it on the ferry while going by the Statue of Liberty, and just stay on the ferry for the return trip. I mean, I just did it for the trip, and for the hot dogs that I could eat. And it just really meant a great deal to me. It was really a beautiful, beautiful part of New York City to be on that ferry. Sadly, after 9-11, they put plexiglass on all of the decks so that you don't actually feel the ocean and the water. And it's a completely different experience when I took my kids on it uh, some years ago. I was very sad about that. But, you know, Statue of Liberty, immigration, you know, all of the different people, from so many places all over the world. And the harbor remains connected to the water of the world, which, you know, water is connected to water, right? It touches every single coastline all over the globe. And so if you're in water that's ocean water, even in the New York Harbor where it mixes with the Hudson, you're really part of the world in a very special way. Land masses are divided and separated, but water is contiguous. And I just think that's a very, very evocative and beautiful thing. And so the image really hopes to get there. I don't know if it does or not. But it certainly hopes to get there. Bottom line, it's just a picture. But I took it from these wonderful little ferries that they have in New York now. It'll take you over to New Jersey or various other points around the harbor, these teeny little ferries that only hold maybe like 50, 60 people. And you're right at the waterline. You know, you might as well it's a flat boat. And, you know, right at the waterline. So it was, a, it was really a wonderful opportunity to take images from that boat, which I took as a misguided effort to get to Newark Airport by not taking a subway. <laughs> 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 but uh, <laughs> It turned out that getting from Manhattan to Newark Airport by using those ferries requires at least two trains, in addition to the ferry, and a, at least an additional hour or more travel time, including the confusion of even trying to find which dock the ferry needs to meet. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's a really insider New York thing. And since I don't live there anymore, you know, I was completely at a loss most of the time. <laughs> but fortunately, I had my camera, and, and I was, uh, it was uh, like a two-day trip, so I didn't have a luggage of uh, any significance. It was actually very, very
0: interesting. So the pending election is giving people hope that, you know, we can vote Trump out and get Biden in. If we are successful, you know, 42, 3% of the country is going to be really pissed off that Trump's not our president. You know, it's interesting to listen to leaders from other countries talk about, you know, I think Prime Minister of Canada the other day talked about this is like watching the fall of the Roman Empire, the state of our country. You know, why should we have hope for, for our country at this point? Are we truly a great power in decline?
3: Yes. But that shouldn't stop us from putting ourselves back together again. I think any great power should be in decline. I think the world of space teaches us that being a great power is bullshit, meaningless. You know, it's all one marvel in space, and all are one people. And nothing makes that more clear than all the wonderful things that you hear and see from people who travel in space. But I view this as a Putin blip. You know, Putin was KGB during the fall of the Soviet Union. He's resented the fall of the Soviet Union as a patriotic member of the Soviet Union would be expected to feel. You know, he was a patriot, raised as a patriot, did patriotic work for the Soviet Union. And, you know, it fell apart and he saw in Trump a useful idiot and an opportunity really mess with us to do all kinds of wonderful KGB activities that undermine the United States and they did it all the way through the Soviet Union fairly unsuccessfully, you know, with Trump on his side, Putin has just had a field day, but it's going to come to an end. You know, I think we've woken up as a people. I think the country has woken up. I think we have a sense in our guts about what's going on, the majority of Americans. You know, I think the fact that Hillary won the popular vote, lost in the Electoral College, is still a painful memory for some (coughs) of the people. They're shell-shocked about this next election and the results of it. And I think Trump, aided by messaging that has been echoed, by Russia and its associates on social media is going to try and mess this thing up, but I think we'll make it through. I, you know, one place I have still a great deal of confidence is in the court system. And if Trump thinks he's going to win this thing, in a great court. I think he's sorely, sorely mistaken. So, I'm not
2: that uh, confident. <laughs>
3: uh, yeah. Oh really? You're not that confident, Mary?
2: I'm not I'm not that confident about that situation at all. That's we me, that's what is making me really nervous right now because of what just happened. It's like this has been the whole reason that the GOP has completely bought on to the Trump corruption train, because they just wanted to get the courts and the, and the justices that have been, the federal judges that have been, you know, for life appointments all across the country. And, you know, that's a big feather in their cap. They, by the way, you know, Trump last night was making it a big thing about how Obama didn't do it. Well, yeah, he didn't do it because Mitch McConnell did not let him do it. Obama know, so had
1: 147 and and Trump's passed like 300. 300. Almost
2: 350 years. But the thing, Karen, is that there were vacancies that... No, I know. allow, getting filled. And then as soon as Trump came on board, they were just wholesale, like, you know, just bringing a clump in and just approving them. People that had no, (laughs) no federal, like, you know, even the usual legal system of approval for this process just completely overrode that as well. So... I'm feeling really nervous. You know, it shouldn't, I don't think we can survive with the kind of progressive things we need to do for climate change right now. We need a court that's going to be a secure, is not going to stop everything, or that we're not going to have things litigated for 10 years before we can enact them. So I'm very nervous about what's happening. And I think that has, you know, liberals and progressives, so what we should start doing is instead of when they say, oh, Democrats are going to come in and stack the court, I think we should start calling it balance the court, that we are going to come in and balance the court because we might have to add two justices to create balance again, so that we don't have this override of conservatives coming in and truly stacking the deck. So I, I kind of feel like we have a lot of work when I hope You're right, Josh, that things are going to happen in the right way and that people wake up and vote for Biden and vote, you know, the Senate as well, because that's super important, because we are going to need them. And economists say it's going to be three years to get out, you know, of this, you know, the economy that's been created by the pandemic. And let's hope we build back the way he's talking about it, you know, something that uses a lot more of the... Green New Deal than the Trump thing of deregulation and fracking with methane going blasting into outer space. That is a real, real concern for me because I I just worry that the courts won't be the backstop that we've had for our lifetime. Well,
3: you know, the, the courts actually, for the past reasonable number of years, have been conservative anyway at the Supreme Court. So, you know, RGB is mostly the center. And Kennedy was, this, was the vote, and Kennedy would flip-flop all the time. So, you know, there's one way around the Supreme Court, which is assuming that you're doing is constitutional, is you pass a law. So, I mean, you can get rid of Roe v. Wade as long as Congress passes a law that provides a universal national right to abortion. So, you know, they can do it if they have the capacity to do it, and they have the capacity to do it if we vote them in and make them do it. So, and that's a democratic process, you know, looking to the court frequently for some of these, you know, Hail Mary passes and stuff is not the best route. I understand that it's a very effective one and useful one. Civil rights would not be where it is today without it. And women's rights would not be where they are today without it. There's no question about that. But by and large, there are better methods than using the courts to accomplish these things. And with a Democratic House, Democratic Senate, Democratic presidency, you can really do amazing things. And, you know, Obama had a really good opportunity in his first term. And, you know, many people criticize him for not having gone further with that opportunity. So... You
2: mean with you know, the getting we, the federal judges or...
3: Well, just across the board because he had so much political power. It was in the second term that he lost the Senate. So, you know... It's complicated, but I'm hopeful for the country in general, because the thing that gets me and that I repeat over and over again when I get depressed about this shit, which of course I do, is kids. So if you look at kids today and the world in which they are being brought up, and Biden, despite despite being a boomer just like me last night, you know, said this isn't 1950, you know, in the suburbs today, you know, the minivan is full of kids from every single race. And that is a fact. That is not an aspiration. It is a fact. And the fact is, is that we've become a pluralistic society. We have become inclusive at the level of a fifth grader or a fourth grader or a third grader. They don't know any different. I mean, they really have no sense of the Proud Boys bullshit, you know, and that's true in Mississippi as much as it's true in New York City or in Encino. And that gives me tremendous hope that we have this generation coming. And, you know, I'm nearly 70 years old. I did my bit, you know, I worked my ass off, I protested, I did all kinds of stuff. But it's gonna be their turn. When it's their turn, they're gonna be very, very different people than the people that we struggle with today. And that's an unrelenting reality. And that gives me tremendous hope.
0: You know, one of the things that gives me hope Is that while this first go round in November where, you know, mail-in ballots get dispersed at scale. It's a very difficult thing to do at scale and this is a very tough time to do it in. But I get very hopeful in thinking that maybe this becomes a regular thing where mail-in ballots go out and we all it makes voting easier, it makes voting more convenient. I wonder if they're thinking like that. Who is they? <laughs> the man. <laughs> well,
2: I think there's something that has begun with Trump. And when you were just talking about Obama's first period where he had all the power, what my memory of that was, was that it was still it was a period where, yeah, we had all the power, but the right wing was aimed at everything, anything he did, if he just even looked at a cup on the tray next to him, you know, they would be like, you know, he was very careful about how he picked his battles because it would become like an issue. And I see them, they have kind of controlled everything. If you hear about how Comey talks about how he felt at the FBI, they had to handle a simple matter of improper email handling equally to Russian you know, involvement in the election favoring another the other candidate, they had to treat those like two equal cases, because the Senate and the Congress Republicans were making such a a stink about it. And they were going to investigate it, assuming that Hillary was going to win, they were going to keep up the Benghazi every week, you know, investigations and add more stuff onto it. And this is how they're operating. And it's, you know, you're a lot more hopeful and I fear that young people see that and that part of the thing is like making it a shit show like that debate last night to turn people off. They just think, uh, my vote doesn't count and these people I don't know what they're talking about. That's part of that strategy. And then the other strategy is that they make such a big thing about every little thing we do. I mean if you look online they're you know, they're already doing you know, it's a sleepy Joe and yet he's also dangerous, you know, and you have to like, Oh, you have to hold these two ideas of him, you know, being like, you know, he's so so dangerous that he's going to bring on socialism and that's pretty h- hilarious. But, you know, anyway, the thing is, is I just worry about how we keep this country together. And for me, the biggest problem has been that we don't have news. We don't have truth. We don't have a common way of discussing what happened, you know, there's an alternate universe out there that the people that vote for Trump live in. And I don't mean that they, you know, live in a different state. I mean, they're like, reading the news differently, or getting the news differently, or hearing different facts. So I worry about this world. And I I don't know how social media is going to, you know, it doesn't seem to be helping, it seems to be in some manners adding to the gasoline. So I'm trying to keep hopeful, I'm keeping my nose to the grindstone and trying to make a lot of art and trying to be as uh, politically active as possible, donating as much as I can to all candidates up and down the line in lots of different states and lots of different uh, campaigns. But I feel like this is like, we know now what the problems are, and it's going to keep going until we solve that problem. And Fox News is a big Part of it, but you know what Putin did was just take advantage of it. He's doing it in Europe too, as you probably know, Joshua. He's you know creating the same problem with democracies in Europe. So you know they're going through a lot of the same stuff as we are.
3: This guy, he's just you know when Trump was elected, he just must have been over the moon and, and we're
2: celebrating. In Moscow. Oh yeah,
3: yeah. And but I mean, in a way that is just he played cat and mouse. You know, with the FBI, his entire career up until you know he became a you know major politician in Russia, and he's won. He's been winning. He's been winning. He's been winning winning at every single game. But you know that wonderful Mad Magazine spy versus spy cartoon, except that this one spy is always winning. Natasha is winning, and you know Natasha used to lose, but Natasha has been winning. So that. In the history books, it's just going to be just this marvelous window when all of that stuff comes out richly. But, I, I, you know, so understand you wanna... in the arc of American experience, what we're going through now is nothing, nothing compared to the colonial era, not even close to the colonial era. And, you know, the formation of this country was through, you know, one of the most aggressively disgusting political periods of the history of any country. And we made it through that. Unlike France, which had to have 15 revolutions before they had a democracy. You know, we only went through it once and we were able to make it stick. There's an enormous amount of will in this country. Indivisible is a perfect name because there's so much will in this country for us to succeed. And when Biden appeals to that, which he does, you know, it just, it makes me tingle, you know, and I think it makes other people tingle. Right? It's what it's all about. You were raised in Washington, D.C. I went to law school in Washington, D.C. You know what it's like at one o'clock in the morning to go to the Lincoln Memorial, and just stand there and look at it. It can't not move you. You know, I was in D.C. during the anti-war movement. I was a very active lobbyist. I represented the entire student body of the University of California during the National Student Strike in the Russian Sea. They put the CIA on me, they put all kinds of people on top of me, but I went to Goldwater's office and talked to him about anti-war issues. I went everywhere and it was, you know, an extremely active period. And from that experience and other experiences, you just develop this real sense of the aspiration of the country. And that doesn't go away. I don't care. How fucking crazy Trump is, I don't care how destructive this little toddler is, I don't care what he does, that aspiration remains true. And yes, there's a group of rabid people who have the con has sunk into and sunk the con deep. You've ever been con, and I have been, I'm willing to admit it. The last thing in the world you want to do is admit that you've been con. It's a very hard thing to do. It's a very difficult confrontation. And so I feel for these people. They've been fooled, but a lot of us have been fooled. And they'll get over it. But the country will survive this. We will be stronger because of it. We will move forward. And we will be in such a great position when Scott's kids are old enough to start actually doing shit. (laughs) My kids are a little bit older. They're more sort of millennial. No pressure. Uh, But you know, when my son talks to me about Bernie Sanders and the things Bernie Sanders talks about or AOC and how incredibly important they are. I think those guys are, you know, a little bit off the rails and, you know, I'm a radical from a way back, but I even, I think they're a little bit off the rails, right? Not my kids, you know, they're a hundred percent there. My wife is a hundred percent there with Bernie. So, you know, I'm very, very hopeful. I'm very depressed, but I'm very hopeful.
2: You are a ray of sunshine, Joshua, (laughs) compared to most of the people I hang out with. That's all i got to say.
3: Scott and Karen, how many artists in this exhibition are uh, Trumpists? Do you have any Trumpists in this exhibition? Oh, that's
0: interesting. And we tried.
3: (laughs) I bet you did.
0: (laughs) They're a very endangered species. Uh, I don't know, very rare. No, you know, that raises an interesting point because, I mean, we did want to have, you know, it is about bringing uh, different voices together. And that's part of the problem, right? It's like we're not talking to each other. We're yelling at each other. We've lost civil discourse. How do we bring civility back? But, Josh, you know, one of the things that I appreciate about what you were saying is this, you know, the historical context is so important. And to have hope, you know, I'm watching, uh, finally, John Adams' HBO short miniseries. Yeah, um, yeah, Giamatti, amazing. Yeah, and I'm just, I'm like, my God this life was so much worse. <laughs> you know, it was filled with hope, but it was also filled with bloodshed. And by the way, a, I don't want to have to inject my kids with smallpox and hopes that they live through it, you know, to vaccinate them against, you know, smallpox. I mean, the shit that they were going through at that time, life on the frontier, all these things, we romanticize it, but it is nothing romantic about it. It's fucking horrible. And so anyway, so I just bring it up because, and I say this to my liberal friends and I say liberal friends, I'm liberal, but But I have friends that are far, you know, left of me who really have been for the last four years talking about moving to another country, you know. And I'm like, I'm not moving. This is my fucking country. Like, I've been to Canada. I love Canada. I don't love it more than this place. So it is interesting because I feel like if you have a broader historical context, it allows you to understand where we're at as a blip or as a tough time, but that if we can get organized, if we can be smart, if we can have patience and diligence and perseverance and and organization and and intention, we can make that
3: change. You know what I love about that series is the art direction on the costuming. They've got the worst looking teeth on any show you've ever seen. (laughs) <laughs> because everybody did have bad looking teeth back Yes, yes. And yes. so I just find that that's just so wonderful, a little piece of authenticity. But that's a great show. That's a But
0: I know, but how do you, I mean, are you guys hearing,
3: are your friends talking about
0: moving to another country? I mean, how does it make you feel when you hear your friends talking about pulling up stakes and leaving?
1: I've been talking about it for years and years, but, you know, I'm not that optimistic. Like, I've seen, I knew this country was going downhill in 2000, Bush v. Gore, and happened. I just lost all faith in the democratic system and free and fair elections and the Supreme Court. And just, I think a lot of Americans did, you know. And I think that's why people get fed up and they don't want to vote because they don't feel like their voices are being represented in the candidates or in the choices that we have. We have like a two-party system. You get two choices, and that's it. And you know, people don't understand. In other countries, there's many candidates, many different parties. And Just so
2: you know, Karen, that doesn't make it better. I, I know, know it doesn't always know. make
1: it better, yeah. but yeah. it has been a problem in this country since you know I was. I'm a Bernie supporter. I loved Ralph Nader. You know, there were many candidates that I wanted to vote third party. But every time they tell us, oh, you can't do that or else we'll lose. And, you know, and then you're going to have an even worse person. And it's always the choice between worse and worse. Especially if you're, you know, if you're a poor person, if you're in a minority area, or if you're a minority or someone who hasn't seen their wage growth go up in years and years and years while, all these rich people get more and more money and have to pay less and less taxes and move their job to China. And so they can pay 12 cents and, you know, capitalism, I'm not a big supporter of capitalism. So for me, it's like, it's choice between the lesser of the two evils all the time. And I think that's really unfortunate. I really have my hopes for Bernie and I don't think people understand what democratic socialism means. They can play it with socialism and they, or they can play it with communism. When that kind of thinking, being that uneducated, you're gonna get fascism because you're so scared of, that's to me truly liberal, like AOC and Bernie and, you know, Rashida Tlaib and, you know, Ilhan Omar, those are the real progressives of the party. I don't even include Nancy Pelosi because she's, like, wealthy. She's centrist, you know. I think the thing is that there are a lot of people in between and a lot of people who...
2: I think that that's the point, though, Karen, and I keep trying to remind my friends who are, you know, Bernie supporters that that's the point, is that we, you know, AOC, for example, she did not win in a purple district. She won in a very blue district and she won from somebody who had been a Democrat and had been a Democratic district for a long time. And the same thing with Bernie. He won in Vermont where they vote usually very happily third party. You know, it's one of those things where because we have them now in the party, it's helping us in the party. That's the point. It's like Nancy actually was a progressive, by the way, you know, and she's kind of held a lot of people together. So that's made her a centrist, because she's trying to speak for all the people that she represents in the Congress. But she's been very good at sort of keeping, you know, a strong hand on all of it in terms of negotiating us and getting us and she said she's not going to be the leader, you know, once this election happens. So I think she was the right person to have this job the last two years. And definitely from the last, you know, what she did in terms of supporting everybody and, you know, keeping everything really focused on Trump. But the strategy that I feel like we all need to get onto is to stop this lesser of two evils. You know, it's like, you know, the other side, I feel like they play football and we, play I'm not sure what like we're constantly thinking it's like a discussion group you know who's my favorite person in the team but they're playing football so you know they are passing the ball to their quarterback they're not like analyzing like who is this guy is he like my favorite person no they just know that he's the quarterback and that's the team so I feel like we need to start to address that a little bit more if we want to get more power. And obviously, that's what they care about. They care about power. They knew they wanted power to get rid of regulations, to get rid of the laws they don't like that they're going to start attacking through the courts. And now they've got the courts. And so it's going to be a real fight. And we have to all be together. I mean, I think now more than ever, we have to adopt this idea of indivisibility within the Democratic Party and work together as a team and I feel like that is what I saw in Congress. And I was really proud of how, you know, everybody in Congress, I mean, you didn't see Nancy Pelosi fighting with AOC. They were together on everything. So that's the kind of thing I think we have to get together with in the Democratic Party if we want to see the changes that we are going to need to make. I mean, it's going to be a really hard next two years. I'm freaking out about states going bankrupt, cities going bankrupt. I mean, it's a very, very scary time right now. and. We have a lot of work to do. And what you asked first, Scott, about people going out of the country, yeah, I think people are saying that all the time. If Trump wins again, I don't know if I can feel that way. I am almost 70 myself, and I can't imagine being 80, 90 and having the rug pulled out from under me because of a stupid election like we had in 2016. And you do get very nervous, but I'm hoping for the best. I'm hoping that people come back to ground to earth and realize like you've been saying, that there's a common goal for all of us in America and that we have a great history and that we can refocus and become more positive. And, you know, the world has missed us. I have a lot of friends from D.C. who work in the State Department. And I mean, what we have been absent in in the world has had so much collateral damage. And it's horrifying so even though we had such a terrible reputation of being the big bosses we kept a lot of shit from happening too so it's a really sad time and we have a lot of work to do
3: but you know despite my Panglossian approach I agree 100% with what you've said you know it's going to be really hard it's going to be hard to claw ourselves back our international reputation is in ruins but I think they're in shock I mean the notes that I get from people who are not living in the United States are so deeply concerned for actually the personal safety of people in the United States. You know, Not just me, but just in general. And the notion that this light is going to go out is very real to them and very concerning, you know. And I try to encourage them as much as I can because I think we're stronger than that. And we are. I mean, you know, you were getting John Lewis's stuff. He made it through. You know, and he made it to a better place, maybe not the best place, but he pushed us to a better place through a lot of bad stuff and a lot of difficulties. And we can push our way through this. We can do it. It's going to be hard, but we can do it.
0: Why is the notion or this thought of the common good, you know, like this basic idea that, you know, most people just want self-respect and dignity and be able to support themselves and feed their family and, you know, affordable access to quality health care, good education. I mean, this idea of the common good, why is that so politicized? Why is that so provocative
3: in this country?
1: Because we live in a capitalist society where, you know, there's a price for everything. And we've been taught that, you know, the more money you have, the better you are as a person or the smarter you are. The less money you have, like the less you're worth and You know, so why take care of a homeless person? Like, why take care of like a mentally ill, you know, veteran laying on the street? Because that'll cost money, and who's going to pay for that? And it's always the question of, you know, who's going to pay for it? Is my tax dollars going to pay for you getting an abortion or you having health care or you not dying?
0: But aren't we a nation under God where we're supposed to love thy neighbor as thyself? Aren't we supposed to care about the homeless? Aren't we supposed to care about those folks in poverty?
2: You know, I think that's a really good point, the point that you're making, Scott, that the idea that people used to vote that way, like, you know, their vote wasn't for themselves, wasn't for their own self-interest, like the idea, the concept of being in a democratic society is that you, you know, vote what's best for everybody, right? You want everybody to do well. And, you know, just my experience from being in other capitalistic societies that I think the thing that we're missing is that we're missing just a little bit more. I mean, I think like Australia, I was in Australia, for example, and the people that I was staying with just happened to be part of the largest conservative party But they were horrified by what was called conservatism in this country. Like, they were horrified that, just as you were saying, Karen, that people, you know, wouldn't have health care. They just couldn't imagine how we lived in a country that didn't provide health care for somebody. Like, if your neighbor had cancer, like, you know, you wouldn't want them to go homeless. And they were horrified by the fact that you know, we were politicizing at that time, we were politicizing gay marriage, you know, because they you know, said, why would you do that? You know, and they were horrified by the guns, they couldn't understand why we would just like let people have assault rifles and walk around a city street, you know. So (laughs) I think capitalism is the main problem. I think what we need to do is make a better society and to be voting more for our common good, and to readdress these attitudes that have you know, been created. And this, again, is kind of the easy thing for Putin to do, for example, it's, you know, Putin's economy, the Russian economy is smaller than Italy. I mean, it's a tiny economy, he's got this huge country. And, you know, so he's, you know, making trouble everywhere with this tiny little, you know, economy of his. But it's very easy to sow discord, it's very easy to sort of sow misinformation. And now with social media, it's even easier. I mean, I couldn't believe that they were allowing Trump to say like 10 total, you know, conspiracy things that right off of the internet, like he was stating them like they're fact, you know, and it's kind of terrifying that we have a leader that does that. And I'm hoping we can survive the period. And I'm hoping that 41% that vote for him, if they do indeed lose, and if he does indeed leave, can get on board with Rebuilding because it's going to be a lot of work. You know, when it's all over, it's still going to be a lot of work.
1: Yeah, I just don't know if they're going to concede, really. So yeah, (laughs) either (laughs) like they'll fight it all the way, and you know.
2: Hey Karen, can I ask you a question? How's your dad? Is he still publican? Oh yeah, I'm pretty sure. Yeah,
3: (laughs) we
1: and my stepmother. So I try not to talk to him about that. And then, you know, every once in a while, like, we'll each like let a, a joke slip, you know, we'll say mm-hmm. something about you libs or something, <laughs> we'll say something about you, you know, crazy Trump So <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's weird. It's interesting because I have a lot of friends who don't. My one ex-boyfriend, his dad's the same way. He's like an avid Trump supporter. And he's changed his last name and everything. Because <laughs> he just adopted a kid. And he's like, I don't have a kid. to have anything to do with this guy? A lot of people have it worse than me. So, <laughs> yeah.
3: I think this is a real challenge there. Last night, when he refused to denounce white supremacists, when he called out to the Proud Boys, to stand up and you know, to stand what stand back and stand by and stand stand by. by, and then, just to remind everyone that wasn't enough. he then went after programs that every single major corporation has instituted that help people understand racial division and to combat endemic racism and call them unpatriotic and American. It wasn't just sort of pandering to a small group of people who he thinks are his supporters that he doesn't want to alienate, it goes much, much deeper than that. It was pure, straightforward, racist behavior. And he's the president of the United States in 2020. And in my view, you know, I feel badly about people with split families, but my parents are deceased, my kids, as I've already said, are in the other direction. I don't really have to deal with it on a family level, but I do deal with it on a professional level. And as a lawyer, I am concerned that the legal teams that Trump has in place, which are huge, important law firms that represent many, many, many corporate clients, these people are in fact executing unconstitutional attempts to undermine our elections. And as such, they are violating the law. They're certainly violating the code of professional responsibility for lawyers. But I think more importantly, on an emotional level, anyone who supports this bozo after last night is a racist sympathizer. And I think it's just straight up reality. There is no way to get around that. You can't say, oh, I'm an advertising company, and I'm just cashing a check for doing political ads. You can't say, I'm just a law firm representing the client, whatever you do to support his candidacy, whatever you do to support him in undermining the validity and legitimacy of the American elections, which by the way, are the best conducted elections in the world, there's virtually no question about it. Last night, I was very disappointed that Biden didn't say, when asked, how are you going to secure the elections, didn't say, excuse me, there's 50 secretaries of state, Underneath them are hundreds and thousands of Americans who supervise elections. Normal people who sit at the polls, I've done, by the way, a number of times, who sit at the polls and give up their time to make sure that the elections are conducted properly. You are insulting every single fucking one of them when you suggest that our electoral process is corrupt, which it is not. Are mistakes made? Of course mistakes are made. At that scale, they would always be made. But it is not corrupted. It is not fraudulent. There is no evidence of it. But to me, the biggest emotional issue and the most deeply divisive, dreadful example from last night this is his racism and this notion that I have that anyone who supports anything that this asshole does is in fact a racist sympathizer, and they should be called out as such. They should not be permitted to believe otherwise and they can't argue their way around it because they like the federal judges. They can't argue their way around it because of some sort of tax break that they got or some weird notion of trickle-down economics. I don't really give a shit. Nobody should give a shit about those issues. Those can be sorted. What can't be sorted is that he is a racist, straight up and down, and that he is using racism as a weapon, and that we have moral duty. To prevent him from going forward in any way that we can. And that includes calling out anyone who works with him or for him as a racist sympathizer. There's just no way around it. But many, many, many Christians will vote for him
0: because he wants to overturn Roe v. Wade, and that's their number one
3: issue.
2: They've never done anything to support women making that choice. I just want to make, because I lived in France for a few years, and while I was there, I had a very shocking kind of realization because, you know, I, right when I came of age, we had the abortion rights was passed, and it completely changed my life because before that, you know, as a teenager, you were freaking out if anything would happen. It was scary, right, in terms of what your options were. And people would hear all sorts of stories. And I had girlfriends that had to leave high school, you know, to go have a child because they were Catholic or whatever. And I never saw them again until 30 years later. So, you know, that was then. And then I just realized when I was in France that we always thought we had choice. And we say that, you know, I'm pro-choice. But when I lived in France and they have a society there which has health care and education that is free. And if you're having a baby, you can put it in a neighborhood creche that is reasonable and scaled to your economic position from the time I think the baby is two or three months old. So kids are really easy to get around with other children. You can be a single kid, but you know how to be around other children. But the idea is, is that I met so many women my age that had children. I don't have children. I met my husband too late, you know, in life, you know, and and in that sense I realized, you know, we don't talk about why aren't these people going for the whole package? They should be supporting healthcare. They should be supporting, you know, children being supported if they have a single mother. There should be a whole social network if they really, really care about families. If family is really their value and they want to vote on that, then they need to back it up more. And we should be demanding that they do that because that way we could at least agree on something. Right. (laughs) And I'm just sorry that we never, we've never really dealt with it on our side. We should deal with this more. There's a lot of films. uh, My husband works in the film business a bit. And it's a lot of films are coming out right now that I think really are powerful in terms of dealing with, you know, that issue again. And we need to start talking about it because the Christians I know, it is a knee jerk thing for them. Like you said, Scott.
0: Well, and and this other aspirational ideal, it it seems aspirational, after all, this ideal of the separation of church and state, right?
3: You know, Scott, you, you said indivisible coming from the Pledge of Allegiance. Do you know how under God got into the Pledge of Allegiance?
2: 1950.
3: Yeah. And who was responsible for that? Billy Graham.
2: Well, and also, it was during the Red Scare, too. Yeah, but
3: Billy Graham was the one who proposed it. Yeah. He also put Under God into on our, on our coinage, on our money. And he was an evangelical Christian. Yeah. Right? A populist evangelical Christian, not part of any organized religious group. And that is the sort of the uniquely American approach. It's this, you know, Rhode Island, formed by Roger Williams, who broke off from Cotton Mather. Up in Massachusetts and said, no, I want to have my own fucking religion. Screw you. You know, the Shakers who came here from Europe and were kicked out of every single country in Europe because of the way they prayed, you know, being able to come to Pennsylvania and take over whole sections of Pennsylvania for their religious practice. Like Mormons who invented themselves, Scientologists who invent themselves. You know, there's this rugged individualism in American life and there's rugged individualism in Christian communities. And I think that's where their lack of social contract comes up. The opposite of rugged individualism turns out to be collective assistance. You know, oh, you know, you're a mountain man. You're the best of the best, right? Because you're out there on your own killing beavers and all the first back. You don't depend on anyone. And you can take care of yourself in all circumstances. If there's a bear, you fucking kill it with your knife. You know, that's the kind of thing that we hold up as, as an ideal. What we don't hold up is collective activity,
2: and that's um, how we actually made this country. Is collectively, I mean, all yeah. of the that was the thing that Reagan kind of used that narrative. But it's not like anybody did anything in this country without, like, it took a village, as Hillary said. I'm sorry to say, it but all
3: of our villages were different. All of our villages were non cohesive to each other. They were all permitted to flourish on their own. I mean, that's what makes us so much different from a place. Like any place in Europe where, as a friend of mine wrote back to me on his first trip to Europe when we were in our teens, and he wrote back to me and said, I'm in Paris, period. History pisses at you from every corner. You know, (laughs) that historical precedent, and, you know, that goes back to pre-Christian periods, you know, is a completely different experience to a place like America, which is just, you know, after we decided to kill every single native person, a blank slate on which you could build whatever the hell you wanted. And it's still like that. Here. You know, you can't forget that that wasn't so long ago. You know, go to Jerusalem, walk the streets in Jerusalem and see what it's like to walk on a Roman road. It is a Roman road. After walking on it, it is a deeply, deeply different experience and environment than walking through San Francisco, which wasn't even there in 1850 for any intents and purposes. And so, you know, we suffer from that. It's a burden that we have, I think, as a result of, you know, that still being the notion of if you don't like it, you know, go, like Frank Lloyd Wright, go to Taliesin, you know, in Arizona and create your own fucking world. You know, have at it, nobody's gonna stop you. That's what makes us so attractive to other countries because my friends from France, They come to the United States because they can't even get a business license for a little shop in whatever town they live in, in France, because of what it takes to be entitled to a business license over there. They can't believe that all you have to do is rent a place and start selling shit. And, you know, eventually somebody will come by and call themselves an inspector. I mean, they can't believe that that's how open the United States is. That's what makes it so attractive to those people and what we take for granted. So I wish there was more... I mean, if you want to die, go to friends. I mean, they just have wonderful hospice there, just extraordinary hospice there, if you pick the right one. They also have terrible ones. My mother, as a child, was abandoned in a nunnery by her parents. I can tell you that experience, you know, all oh, wonderful. It was a crash. Bullshit. It destroyed her for life. All of those women in Ireland, my God, your heart has to go out to them every single last one of them. I wasn't
2: uh, talking about that with the crash. It's, it was just, daycare. I know I
3: understand that. I'm yeah. just saying the crash is
2: a daycare. It's not, I get not it. But
3: there's a, industry. there's a downside to that kind of, you know, environment. Just as there is but, it,
2: but it's
0: also not zero sum or all or nothing. Right. I mean, there no, are, it isn't. you can cherry pick. So for example, right. This idea of, you know, American exceptionalism, right. It's like, Oh, we know how to do it better. I mean, as I understand it, after nine eleven, Israel wanted to help us better understand how to catch terrorists at the airport. But we didn't want Israel's help because we knew how to do it fast. And so it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Israel, like <laughs> like they nobody does it better. But more to the point, France. When we were in France in Paris, my wife and I back in oh eight, my wife came down with H one N one swine flu and we found ourselves in the French healthcare system for over a month. And when the ambulance showed up to get her, there was a physician embedded in the ambulance. And what I would come to learn is that physicians are embedded in the ambulances because a lot of health care is delivered in the home. They only bring you back to the hospital if you need that, right? If that's what it is. And now this happened to be the same time when our country was having the so-called healthcare reform debate, and we didn't want to be like the French. And it's just like, find the goodness, find the gems, be inspired by them, steal those (laughs) and use them. But our arrogance, our exceptionalist ideals and self-image oftentimes Makes us too proud, and pride comes before the fall, which is what scares me.
3: Well, in healthcare, uh, you're dealing with the money issue. I mean, yeah, yeah I if you're if say- you're a doctor in France, your compensation level doesn't even approach the compensation level of an average doctor.
2: But uh, I'm sorry, but I know doctors in France, and they make a good living, and they're upper middle class. They're not poor, but it's not like they're not having shopping center medical facilities like they do here. You're right.
3: Yeah, you know. and in Tel Aviv, for instance, if you need medical assistance, the first level of medical assistance is provided to you by a guy on a motorcycle or a girl on a motorcycle. Yeah. They just sort of show up on a motorcycle. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> the nurses—that's how the nurses do it yeah. in France. I mean, yeah, they come yeah.
3: In they you know, a and boy, that efficiency is just amazing. You know, mm-hmm. what do we do? Is we send two massive diesel trucks from <laughs> the fire department. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. If I call up and say, I think I'm having a heart attack, they're going to send two huge diesel trucks to come and get me you Know it's crazy, it's and it'll cost
2: you a lot of money too. If well, actually, you could
3: go bankrupt. <laughs> know. You could go bankrupt. Actually, the Los Angeles Fire Department charge for an ambulance ride is really quite reasonable. Okay. But what you don't want to do is agree to a private ambulance that's going to cost you an okay.
0: Well, and I'll just say the story, and then I want to be respectful of everybody's time as well. But when my wife was discharged from the hospital 10 days, three days in the ICU, seven days in the general ward. And we were being discharged and they gave us one sheet of paper and it basically had one line item on it that said 10 days in the hospital, 15,000 euros. Like that's all it said, right? One line item. And that was uh, 15,000 euros, right? Which was at the time 18 or 19,000 us. Now 3 days in the ICU, 7 days in the general ward. Now, guess how long it took for our American insurance company to reconcile the bill with the French? A year and a half. Oh
3: wow.
1: I was going to say so, a year, but
0: yeah. <laughs> how much money was spent reconciling that when they could have just taken it out of petty cash. Like nobody had the sense <laughs> enough to say like, "Oh, this is a deal. <laughs> you know, let's take it out of petty cash." I know. Yeah. And
2: I, I'm so glad you're. I mean, that seems even high to tell you the truth. I bet you could have dickered with them the first time. <laughs> <laughs> now
0: you tell me. Because,
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, they would always be so apologetic to us whenever, like, my husband broke his thumb and I think they charged $5 because it wasn't setting right and they had to re break it and set it again. And he had it, paid it for cash when it was like $5 you know, for the materials. So, mm-hmm. anyway. That system, though, just so you know, I mean, Josh, that's why, you know, there's high taxes. So and that's the thing about Karen. that's the thing, Karen, I always want Bernie to talk more about because he talks about Medicare for all. But the thing is, is that some people want the insurance they have worked their whole life for, like everybody I know in the entertainment industry have like better insurance than I get, you know, for sure. And they don't want to have to go to something else. They work their whole career to get onto that insurance and they have a union that supports that. So, you know, some people that have that don't want to get onto something else and it's going to cost a lot of money. But what we do need and what we will be able to do if we get somebody like a lot of Democrats on board, Biden and a Senate, we can start building the network. It's a national network that we need. We can see with this pandemic, that was one of the biggest issues is that we didn't have any way of getting stuff out to everybody. Every state is acting like its own separate entity was a huge problem. And there was no networking that was being done. So I'm
3: sorry, Trump is responsible for that.
2: Oh, I know. I'm not saying that. I mean,
3: we did have the CDC,
2: yeah, no, it, I know. It
3: was, in you know, the entire world, the most highly viewed set of experts in the world. Oh, no, I know, Their I know. I'm competency not saying, I'm not
2: talking about that. beyond
3: compare. And the governors were set loose by Trump. Yeah. And, you know, and some of them are bozos and even ours fucked up. I mean, you're going to make mistakes. So
2: no, it's I know. all
3: it, on that guy.
2: No, but I'm saying for a national healthcare system, I'm saying there needs to be a network. And I think now that we've had the pandemic, there's more reason for us to invest in it because it's a very big investment for us to have some sort of a nationalized system so that when something like this happens again, there is a much easier rollout. That's what I meant. I didn't
0: and the scary awesome. notion is that it most likely will happen again. Yeah. We've been dodging pandemic bullets for the last many years. We finally got hit with one. And it's unfortunately scary to say a harbinger of things to come.
3: You know? Right. This guy put his son in law in charge of this shit and who got a couple of college buddies together and they decided that they would let the free market take care of a national pandemic. What the fuck? I mean, that is just the most incredibly ridiculous, stupid thing ever. And if you were an infectious disease expert, I would almost cry in the presence of one of these experts out of empathy for them. The one thing they learned unequivocally from the 1918 pandemic, was the three things that you need to do for a respiratory disease is wash your hands, wear a mask, and socially distance. And they knew that in 1918, that was the lesson. There's no person in that field who isn't taught that, knows that, and lives that every day. And to have a president of the United States refuse to message that to the American people and, in fact, counter-message it and still have to try to work in that field to help people who are otherwise going to die. That's yep. got to be one of the most delicious forms of torture ever invented by that set of Greek gods up there who just look down on us and laugh their asses off. All <laughs> I mean, it, it is just the most ridiculous thing in the world. And we are the laughingstock of the world for that having taken place.
0: Well, Having said that, Mary, (laughs) you get the parting word as we wrap up today's amazing session. What's on your mind right now after all this powerful conversation?
2: Oh, I'm so happy to meet you guys. I was actually wanting to know a little bit more, Scott, whether you have children. You were saying earlier. I do.
0: I have two children. My daughter is eight and my son is three.
3: Okay. and.
0: Yeah. And so we got married late in life. We ended up adopting. And my kids are both African-American. So, you know, all of these issues have uh, personal resonance for me and our family.
2: Yeah, that's a big responsibility in this world.
0: Yes, it is. But it always has been right? Mm -hmm. And that's the thing. I was a late bloomer when it came to being a dad, but I took great solace and confidence in knowing that I was not the first person to (laughs) ever ever do it. And, you know, I might be able to stumble my way through it and they might turn out okay if I just led with love and consistency and what have you. So yeah, they're they're a handful. I'm exhausted. (laughs) I've got a lot more gray hair than I used to, but it's in the end
3: well worth it.
2: Totally. And I think that your family is like my dream for this country in a way. I mean, I, I want us to think of ourselves as family. I mean, for me, that's what that word kind of means as well. Because in a family, you might not agree on everything. You might not be you know on the same page on things, but you still come together as a family. And I hope we can start to think about that as a country now. We do have to learn how to talk to each other. We do have to learn how To engage with everybody in a different way. I've spent the last couple of weeks wanting to just get out there and educate as much as I can because there's so much negativity on everybody's kind of using social media in such a negative, kind of trollish way, both sides, you know. And I just say, let's try to educate, let's try to reach out, let's not like demean each other. We've got to bring people together and i really feel so strongly that you know we have to have like you said hope that this is going to get better and hope is a lot of work my father who was a labor organizer he used to always say every generation has to fight the battle over again there's no winning you win a battle but there's going to be another battle you just keep fighting you know so it's just that kind of attitude of like every generation is going to have battles to win and we've got a lot to do so i'm glad to meet two more people that i can add to my list of people that i feel are part of the good fight and doing the good trouble and i really appreciate karen so much for doing this cuz she's a star and she's always so inspiring all of her work has been you know so focused on things that i'm really passionate about too and so we have always had such good conversations and i thank you scott and i thank you joshua it was great to meet you.
0: Good to meet you. Great to meet you. Well, I want to, again, shout out to Karen. This show wouldn't exist without her. She brought everyone together. But we also believe, and this was as we were thinking about putting the show together and talking about it, we wanted the show to air on the side of positivity. We wanted the show to air on the side of aspirational. It's very easy to be angry and be mad. Everyone's yelling. Everyone's angry and mad. You know, what can we do to try to add value to the conversation or add some hope to the conversation mm-hmm. and Karen very astutely keenly wisely cleverly came up with this notion of indivisible mm-hmm. and we said let's do that and you know it is an ongoing conversation and we hope to make it an annual show we want to do this next year the year after that because it's going to take that consistency over time you know and we hope that you'll come and participate next year Mary and Josh you as well <laughs> Deal. Well, thank you so much for your time. Karen, any parting thoughts? <laughs> I think
1: you kinda summed it up, you know. Got it. Yeah, I don't know what else to add to the conversation, but I think it was I'm just listening to the other artists so much just you know, chime in myself about But I like the positive attitude.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, we started this conversation. We started this conversation.
1: (laughs) I'm, like, not feeling so positive. I'm so sorry. I I have not been feeling positive for, like, a while. But I'm trying.
2: (laughs) Mary knows. I know I've been trying to fuck you up. Have <laughs> some <I> hope.
0: <laughs> but but Karen and I had this amazing conversation yesterday with Leroy Johnson who's also in the show thanks to Karen. And you know, here's a guy, 83 years old, out of Philly, he was a Black Panther in the 60s, you know, born in I think 1935, and if anybody had a reason to be angry or pissed off or not have hope, he would be someone like Leroy. But man, did he have a light? And did he have energy? And he gave me hope. I mean, he's pissed off and angry, too. Don't get me wrong. But (laughs) he's erring on the side of hope. And and I just love this notion. You know, he talked about the fact that we the people are the infrastructure that the politicians need to be investing in. They talk about they want to help reinforce the infrastructure and and invest in infrastructure in this country. He said, they talk about roads and bridges. He said, no, we're the infrastructure. Right. We're the people. And I think it's those ideals that we need to keep shining a light on and fighting for. Because when you keep fighting, you have hope. So. I
2: agree.
0: All right, everyone. Great chat. Okay.
2: <laughs> Great to see you guys. Great to
0: see you. Be well. Be Thank well you.
2: Too.
3: Bye-bye. Josh. Bye, Scott. Bye, Mary. Bye. Bye, Bye. Bye.
2: Bye. Bye. Bye Mary. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Sharon.
0: Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, please press the subscribe button and follow us on Instagram at notrealartworld. If you're an artist, be sure to apply for our 2021 Artist Grant at notrealart.com. Sourdough out.